Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. If you like my show, you're going to love Attack Each Day, the Harbaugh's podcast, exclusively on Podcast One. Each week, Coach Jim Harbaugh is joined by his father, Jack, as they talk about family, sports, and of course, the University of Michigan's football team. You get firsthand knowledge from the head coach himself. Don't want to miss out. So listen to Attack Each Day, the Harbaugh's podcast with Jim and Jack Harbaugh every week on Podcast One or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Dan Feldman of NBC's Pro Basketball Talk, a great guy to talk to this time of year because of his combination of skills. So not only do we go big picture, small picture in the NBA, but we talk about the rookie scale options that got declined and accepted and the importance there. A lot of discussion about Jimmy Butler and what Minnesota should be looking for, a potential Houston trade, a lot of those things, and then really what we're looking for moving forward in this season as we're just a few weeks in. Conversation runs a little bit over an hour, brought to you by betonline.ag. Use that Podcast One promo code for a 50% sign-up bonus. Pluto TV, the leading free streaming TV service, and TrueCar, great place to buy new and used cars. So good episode. I, I really like that we went in, in different directions at the same time. It can be a little scattershot sometimes when you're watching each team only a couple times, but I really like the conversation as well. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. We're still in the early stretch of the season. I mean, normally we'd just pass Halloween. This would be when the season would be starting. So I am, I'm thankful that we do have two weeks of material to talk about, but you don't, it's, it's always hard, you know, 10 games or fewer to make any big pronouncements. But where I wanted to start was your kind of bigger takeaways from the season so far, whether you think they're going to continue or not. Yeah. For the most part, I think teams are kind of performing roughly in line with what I thought. Like nothing, nobody, I don't think there's a single team that has done anything so far that makes me go, wow, this is a way different team than I thought it would be. And we can talk about which ones are the closest, which ones might be threatening that. But is there anybody for you that so far you'd say, yep, it's just, you know, five, six, seven, however many games in. And I've got to completely reset expectations for this team. I don't know that I have to reset expectations for the Sixers, but my idea that they would take a significant step forward this year, I think that idea has to be muted, at least for now. Some of that is them playing Marco Fultz in the starting lineup. I mean, I didn't expect that, mostly because it doesn't really make... It makes sense <laughs> from an organizational perspective, but it doesn't necessarily make sense from a basketball perspective because it's superfluous in terms of shot creation, and then it creates all these other issues in terms of spacing and, and everything else. So I, I, I don't know that I've really... It's changed the way they think about the franchise or anything, because, I mean, Embiid's been monstrous. Simmons has been more up and down than I expected, but it's early, and he's dealt with some health stuff a little bit. But yeah, I mean, there really aren't that many. I mean, like, I, I've been interested in teams like the Pistons and kind of the Pistons and Hornets and kind of where those teams would be. And, you know, when the Pistons went on that pre, like that early season wins run, you're saying they're going, oh, maybe that's different. But when I watched them more, to me, they felt like a similar team to what I expected, maybe a little bit better. I mean, Blake Griffin has been definitely better than I expected. But... I think what some of it has been to me, one of the bigger storylines 
is, and we're excluding teams like the Rockets here where they've just been hurt and they've lost a bunch of games. I don't expect that to be there. Like for Cleveland is a good example where I saw a worst case scenario that looks a lot like this, but I didn't know that that was going to be what happened. And so for some of those, I think we've gotten confirmation that, oh yeah, this is, this is kind of who we thought they were. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's a good way to put it. You know, there are most of the teams so far within their best case, worst case, reasonable best case, reasonable worst case range. I'm not sure I want to exclude the Rockets. Yes, they'll they'll get Harden healthy and they'll get Paul and they'll have them playing together at some point and things will get better. But it does look kind of troubling in some ways that might be real, especially defensively. But their offense looks a little clunkier than I expected. That concerns me. Their defense is near maybe worst case scenario level. And, and that's very troubling in ways that might not just magically heal. Right. And the explanations, I mean, yeah, they've missed James Ennis and they've missed Nene and also having a less potent offense hurts their defense. I mean, because Mm -hmm. it's just a a smaller proportion of possessions that you're defending in the half court. But I had this idea of the Rockets and part of the reason I went with their over and everything like that was this concept that their problems, kind of like the Toronto Raptors last year, their problems were more playoff problems than regular Mm -hmm. season ones because normally teams don't game plan for specific opponents, their strengths and weaknesses, maybe in like clutch moments like there was that game last year. When Indiana, I think it was the last five minutes of the game when they were playing OKC, they just started running high pick and roll with Melo's guy every single time. And so maybe you see those sorts of circumstances. But teams have been attacking Houston, and part of it might be a parallel that I've seen, you know, covering the Warriors for a little while, which is that now that a lot of the things that Houston did are becoming more prevalent around the league, coaches have a plan for that general concept, and then the Rockets are a good opportunity to really deploy those ideas. Can you can you expand on that last point more? I'm not sure if I follow what you mean. Okay, so last year the Rockets stood out in terms of the aggressiveness of their switching defense, that they were basically switching everything. And so I think a lot of teams, especially in the regular season, had trouble dealing with that. They, it wasn't something they anticipated. There are ways to exploit it, but they're sometimes challenging. And then this year, over the off season, it's kind of like in football how sometimes like if something becomes trendy, the next year... Everybody has figured out at least one little thing they can do to stop it. Maybe that's an early seal post up with a big guy or like some sort of back screen or something else that'll challenge the communication. And so it makes sense that coaches around the league would spend part of the offseason thinking about, well, how do we attack a team that switches everything? And so Mm -hmm. it makes sense to, if you thought of a couple of cool things, do those against the Rockets because at least up until this point, we knew that's what they were going to do. I think that's spot on, and I also think just adding to it, it, it's switching is becoming more prevalent, and so teams are used to it. I mean, it, it wasn't exactly a novelty when the Rockets did it last year, but it was closer to that than it is this year. I think the more we go on, the more teams are, are just used to it. And so you have to have those tweaks because you're going to see it. It's not just the few times a year you play the Rockets. It's going to be fairly often you're going to face that. Yeah, and even teams that might not consider that a part of their identity are more amenable to switching now. And so I think that's mm-hmm. important as well, just because it, it's a it's a wrinkle you're going to see a lot more often. And so now whatever the next unique thing that a team does or close to unique, then that will become an adjustment period. But I mean, the concept of switching is still sound. It's just that there are ways to attack it. I mean, I thought back last year, 
one of those games that really struck me was when Yusuf Nurkic, there, there was, I think, a national game like on ESPN, Nurkic was just going after basically whoever the Rockets switched on him in the post as long as it was smaller than one of their centers. And there will be avenues like that. I mean, the sw- the whole concept of switching is to narrow the windows, but that you're there at certain points you're going to get mismatches. I mean, something else that the Warriors did, and the team to me that was the pinnacle of this was actually Cleveland. Cleveland going against Boston more two years ago than last year, they basically said, okay, if you're going to switch everything, we're going to spend the early part of our possession getting exactly what we want, and then we're going to spend the rest of the possession attacking that. And, you know, that you, you're you basically conceding that with a switch-heavy system unless you get into stuff like pre-switching and scrambling and all that. But the idea is that the benefits are worth the downsides, even if the calculus changes a little bit as teams get better at attacking. Yes, yes. And so... Are you as concerned as I am about the Rockets defense, like that the league is catching up in some ways because of those things? Or do you think once they get their personnel, they'll settle into it in the regular season only? I'm talking uh, to an acceptable level uh, of what people are kind of hoping for this year. Maybe not quite as sharp as last year, but good enough to win a lot of games. So before the season started, my anticipation, what I anticipated for the Rockets was that they would take a step down. I mean, personnel is different and that there would be an adjustment. But we should, as a point of reference, we should say where they were last year. So last year, using cleaning glasses, which filters out garbage time, the Rockets were sixth in defense. I expected them to be somewhere between, like, let's say, 9 and 13, something in that range. So, like, better than better than league average, but not much better than league average. And so, you know, if, if you do that tone down and then maybe a little bit in offense just because their offense was ridiculous last year, that's still a really good team. That's probably somewhere in the, like, third or fourth best team in the league standpoint. Now I'm less confident in that because it, the points of attack, even though there are going to be fewer of them once they get guys back, they're still going to exist. Like this is not a team that is just resolute and their offense, you know, I, I'm a little bit more worried about that. And then if they have to get back more in defense and the Rockets to me, they also look beyond the fact that they're playing inferior defensive players. They also look less crispy. They look a little bit flat and they look really flat on offense too at, at moments in time. And that can take longer to fix. So maybe by the end of the season, they'll be okay. But the adjustment period, I mean, this is a team that had a lot of continuity overall. I mean, if you're, especially if you're considering their best players, they did lose some important pieces, but I, I just didn't expect the first part of this season to be rough. And yes, they've dealt with a lot of injuries, but that's for me, I'm talking more about the way they played rather than who's been playing. Mm-hmm. I wonder how much they miss Jeff Bizdelic. Yeah. Uh, who got a lot of credit and did a lot of good things with that defense and making sure everybody understood what the plan was. And Mike D'Antoni, I think, is a very good coach, but he doesn't really care about defense. And, you know, that's it's easy to say, oh, that's terrible and he should and, you know, he's responsible for the whole team. But he's interested in what he's interested in and he gravitates towards spending more time in practice in film talking about offense, thinking about offense. That's just how it is, right or wrong. And, you know, without this Delic there, I don't, you know, I don't know exactly how they're divvying up defensive responsibilities this year, but I, I think they miss him. I think they do as well. And that was actually something Matt Moore brought up when he was on the show before the season started that he was concerned about is this idea that D'Antoni, I respect that he understands what he cares about and what he doesn't care about. I, I, I kind of, I understand that because certain coaches think they can do everything and then they don't give as much attention to it and the team can suffer. That is not happening here. But it's a real 
it's a real challenge because then you have to fill the gap. And remember, Bizdelic left the team pretty close before the start of the season. Now, it's entirely possible that D'Antoni and his staff knew before that. We That is not a piece of information that I know, at least, when they found out. But yeah, I mean, there there are those challenges. And also, I, I wrote about this a little bit in a piece that just went up for The Athletic about Jonas Jerebko and how Jerebko, one of his biggest benefits for the Warriors so far has been that he is not really a point of failure for their defense. It's not necessarily that he's great all the time. He, he us- He's fine, but he's usually not, you know, like their best player. But there is an intense value to basically having guys that don't screw up very often. And when you look at Houston's rotation last year, as much as there were guys like James Harden that we've been critical of their defense, the switch approach did take away a lot of those points of failures for those specific individuals. That same approach doesn't work nearly as well for Carmelo Anthony because he he doesn't screw up defense in the same ways that Harden does. Right. Defense is very much a you're only as strong as your weakest link thing because the offense has the ball to a lot, not completely, but to a very large degree, the offense can dictate who the primary defender is going to be in the play. And yeah, Carmelo Anthony stands out. And also, I mean, the Rockets have been getting beasted whenever Capella sits because they don't have enough depth there. And yes, I completely understand them putting a lot of their eggs in the wing basket. I support more teams doing that. I I think they should more often. But that is the downside. I mean, there is a lot of depth at center, but having guys that can execute what you want to do. I mean, Isaiah Hartenstein's been, I don't think he's been truly awful to me, but he can't do what the Rockets need him to do if we're holding them to a standard of no points of failure. Right. I mean, he's a 20-year-old rookie still figuring things out. Like, that's not a fair thing to ask of him. We're just looking at it differently because this is a team that has championship contending expectations. And so we don't really look at it as room for, hey, is he developing like a young big should? Is it, hey, is he ready to play this rotation role because he has to right now? Houston also could be one of the teams, and this is kind of part of my pet theory with them, is that they will benefit a lot from buyouts because they have minutes right now. Like that that's one of the differences between them and some of these other teams. Arguably, you know, maybe the Lakers get there, but like a buyout guy, we already saw this with Greg Monroe last year with Boston. I don't think I would necessarily want to go to a really deep team unless I was sure that I was going to get minutes there. So Houston becomes more interesting, especially if I were a big man. The Lakers become really interesting. The Thunder, depending on how they figure out basically everything two through four in their rotation, their situation has has some openings as well. And so it's always hard to to expect whether guys are going to think tactically, and it's always way it's way too soon. I mean, we're months and months and months away from that. But if we're projecting what those teams are going to look like in April, I think it's fair to say that they they will have some personnel turnover, and they can benefit because something you and I both know because we're both CBA nerds is that there are appalling number of free agents this year just because of the combination of when guys sign contracts and nobody wanting to sign multi-year contracts last year because of how bad the market was. Yeah, it's hard for me to get too excited about buyout possibilities. It's so rare those post-buyout players are real difference makers. And yes, maybe the circumstances align a little differently this year where a team like the Rockets has room and it's going to push guys into the market. Guys who would have would not have taken a buyout might now. But I'm very hesitant to, to buy into that. And I'm also hesitant to assume that the Rockets are going to use their mid-level exception that maybe they'll say they're saving that for a buyout. I kind of think, hey, they're pretty deep into the luxury tax already. They might be near their limit unless it involves maybe even period 
but maybe they'd make an exception if they can get Jimmy Butler or a star like that. But for just a guy who took the buyout, how much salary, how much more luxury tax are they going to take on? Right, and how much are teams going to try to squeeze on these players to say, hey, if you want to get out, you leave some money on the table? And there are always challenges with that. I mean, it depends on where the teams are and their circumstances. And we'll get to that. And it's something that I, I'm going to keep an eye on more than anything else is with San Antonio, because their offense, I, I'm not surprised that their offense is doing well. I mean, they have talented players and Popovich more so than probably, and his staff more so than anyone I would trust to get the most out of the DeRozan, LaMarcus Aldridge combination. And them out executing bad teams is not really a big surprise. But I, I just want to see more of when they, when they get play against not necessarily the best, the best, because I think that story is, is something a little bit different. But when they play, let's say, somebody more in the light, when they play teams more in the like four to eight range in the in the West, if they can if they can win those games with some consistency, then they have a, a better shot at the playoffs than I probably anticipated once Dejounte Murray went down. Yeah, I mean they're they're competitive, but like you said, Pop is so good coaching guys like DeRozan and Aldridge defensively. It's not a highly complex offense. It seems like the type of thing that should be plug and play get them in it and you can pick up very quickly early in the season where other teams might be figuring more things out but yes they have been more impressive than I expected and especially after those those injuries uh, Bryn Forbes is really stepping up playing well shooting well from outside for them and you know I don't know how exactly sustainable that is he is a good shooter but over these large minutes, this is not a role he's had to deal with before. Uh, he's been more of a bit player. If he can keep that up, they'll be in good shape. That can tie them over until some of these injuries subside. But yeah, I am impressed with their start too. And something that I'm going to watch on a few of these circumstances, Bryn Forbes and Damian Jones are two examples of this, are players who are probably inferior to some of the other options, but also got into starting spots because of injuries to players that are returning at some point. So not only the, the DeJounte, because DeJounte's out for the year. I mean, that's a very different conversation. Right. Derek White More was thing there. about Derek White, yeah. Yeah, Derek White was their anticipated starter once that happened. And so Bryn Forbes, is, as you said, he's stepped up, he's looked better. And Damian Jones, I think he's been better than my expectations, but my expectations were low. They did pick up his, his option. We'll talk about options a little later. But... How those guys fit in once the players that are above them and returning come back is going to be interesting because you kind of want to reward guys for delivering in, in, in a role, but at the same point, you still have to do what's best for the team because you're trying to get seeding, you're trying to make the playoffs in the Spurs case. And so I, I wonder how both of those organizations are going to handle that different kind of challenge. Yeah, I mean, with Forbes in particular, it seems like he's a good fit in the starting lineup. A guy who can be a spot-up shooter around those isolationists. I think there is a fit there where maybe you don't... I mean, Derek White is probably a better player. That's why he was in line to start over Forbes. But the chemistry is more of a... is something to evaluate it. You don't always need to start your five best players. Sometimes you want a lineup that fits better. And that, to me, would make the Spurs situation a tougher call. What was the other one you said? Damian Jones with the Warriors. Oh, yes. I mean, that one is a little different because DeMarcus Cousins, there is such a huge talent gap there that how could you not start Cousins? Like, I feel like you owe it to him that you have to try and showcase him and play him with the starters. And if it doesn't go well, it doesn't go well. But I think you at least have to start with him starting. With the Spurs, I think it's a more complex question. Yeah, and something that the Spurs have gotten the opportunity to do early on in this year, which I'm excited about just from a from a basketball theory perspective, is 
giving DeMar DeRozan the ball a lot. I, I, you know, he has been underappreciated. While I am very critical of him as a playoff player and, you know, his, that his flaws are more exploited against superior competition, he does good things with the ball in his hands as a, uh, you know, as a pick and roll ball handler. He was actually higher on the list over the last couple of years than I would have anticipated had I not become familiar with that at the time. And so an offense that uses him and Lamarcus Aldridge as hubs is probably a good word for it can be successful, and Bryn Forbes makes sense there. And I think part of the idea that they were going to use Derek White was that Derek White can do more with the ball in his hands, but it might just be that San Antonio doesn't need as much of that. They they would definitely benefit from a more capable defender, and Bryn Forbes can get beasted in those elements more than Derek White and obviously DeJounte Murray. But, I mean, there, there are trade-offs here, and I think they're going to probably experiment with both guys once White gets back. But I wouldn't be surprised if they end up sticking with Forbes once they've kind of figured out both options. Yeah, that's a good point about experimenting. You know the Spurs are going to play a lot of different lineups uh, because different guys are going to be rusting on some nights, and that gives them the opportunity to naturally experiment without forcing the issue. And, yeah, we see that this seems to be working pretty well with Bryn Forbes, but we will get a chance to see how it works uh, with Derek White and other permutations. Lots more to talk about with Dan Feldman, but first a message from betonline.ag. I was, again, one of the winners of the picket challenge for the NFL. Excited that I'm doing so well in this. I did used to cover the NFL, so I do have some advantages there. And one of the perks of winning is that I get the opportunity to give out some credit for betonline.ag. So all you have to do, send me a tweet using the hashtag SportsNetChallenge, and you have to use the hashtag because otherwise it gets too hard to find, and your account name, and then five lucky listeners will find $100 in free credits in their account. So, so get the tweets in quickly. And if you do not have a bet online account yet, get one created and send in your tweets. And even better, if you haven't set up an account, not only do you have the chance to win the $100, but if you use that promo code PODCAST1, P-O-D-C-A-S-T-O-N-E, you get a 50% sign-up bonus. So it's a, a pretty good double if you don't have an account yet. But if you do, of course, you know the benefits of bet online. This is a great time to do it with football, basketball, hockey, all going strong. And then, of course, they're very active in other events as well. So really, whatever you're into, if you're going to watch a game anyway, it can make it more interesting. And if maybe you're looking for something on a night that you're you're around and you want to do that, you can add a little bit of spice to it with BetOnline.ag, the exclusive partner of Podcast One Sportsnet. I'm sure that one of the big surprises around the league is the Bucks. And, you know, they're not going to go 82-0, and I'm guessing, but they will have already played between when we record this one, it comes out, they will play the Boston Celtics, so we'll see how that affects their hype train. But a lot of what Milwaukee has done in terms of being a more cogent defense and offense scheme-wise and execution-wise, that always made them being a lot better, a logical solution. And again, you know, they're projected currently by 538, like their projections have them at 54 wins. To me, that that might have been outside of the like reasonable band for a lot of people, but it wasn't for me. It's just on the high end. Yeah, it wasn't for me either. This is a talented team that added somebody I think we both think is a good coach. Uh, not necessarily the best coach, but a good coach who's replacing a bad coach. And so the difference there is huge. And, you know, did the right moves around the edges to, to bring it together, to sign Brooke Lopez and Ursan Eliasova, uh, guys who, again, are not the most talented players, not the best players, but fit the style of play uh, Budenholzer wants to use, fit around Giannis Antetokounmpo, and really just bring this together into a very cohesive team that 
Yeah, I mean, 7-0 is always going to be surprising for basically anybody but the Warriors or maybe the Rockets. But the way this team has played, like, it's not shocking to me either. And Toronto's only loss of the season was to Milwaukee. (laughs) And the Raptors' success is also not surprising to me. I mean, Kawhi, I don't think he's all the way back, but he's looking closer to 100% seems like overstatement, but closer to, let's say, 95% (laughs) than I expected. And I think also what I've seen from them, even going back to that game that they had against Boston, which was one of my favorite games of the year, the impact that he can have on both ends of the floor in terms of defensively gumming up a lot of what the opponent wants to do. He can guard a lot of different positions, but just get into passing lanes and everything else. And then offensively, a fundamental difference between him and DeRozan is that I have more confidence, even if it's not necessarily aesthetically pleasing, I have more confidence in Kawhi to be able to get his when the situation presents itself, even against good defenses. Because there was a point in that Celtics game where Toronto's offense was basically just give the ball to Kawhi and have him go to work. And that can function. Like you can actually be successful that for a period of time. It's probably not how you want to build your offense, but there are moments in time when you can lean on him because he's very strong. He has a, a nice skill base at this point, and he just he has more physical advantages than DeRozan because he's a little bit bigger, and you can't counter him in the same ways. Yeah, he is such a talented isolation scorer, and here's the big plus of going to isolation scoring with him, beyond the fact that he's efficient in that, and he's going to get you buckets, and you're not going to turn the ball over, which is related to this. You know where the shot's going to be coming from. You are going to be prepared to get back on defense. You are going to prevent transition opportunities. He might score, he might not. Uh, when he does, it's even easier because they're taking the ball out of the hoop and out of bounds. But you are going to get set on defense with Kawhi Leonard on the court. It is so hard to score in the half court against the team that has Kawhi Leonard. And so it's just a cyclical thing where if you're playing that style offensively, it's really going to help you defensively too. I am incredibly excited if they can make it through full strength to see what the Raptors could be in a playoff series. Also because Danny Green is looking like Danny Green. And it's always a challenge when a player has a really down year, especially when they're getting older. You know, like Danny Green is is in his 30s. It's always hard to say, okay, was this them getting old or is this them conserving energy or is this them being hurt? And even if you know that there's an injury, it's, you know, proportion of blame, I guess you could call it that way. And so what is what is each one of those factors? And with Danny Green, my thought watching him last year was, oh, maybe, you know, like maybe there's a chance it's an injury, but this might just be him becoming less effective as a player. And so far, my read on it has been, it was basically all injury and that he looks like the guy that he was about two years ago. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he said after the season that he had that torn groin and he didn't know exactly how long he had it. He probably shouldn't have played on it. He should have gotten a second opinion. And that, especially how he's playing this year, seems to be the case. I think it also helps that his game is fairly simple. He is, you know, he's a shooter. He's a defender. He knows his role. He plays within it. He's not over being, he's never been asked to overextend. He stays within that role. And so I think that increased the odds that he'd get back to doing what he does. And what he does is just such a nice complimentary player to have. Let's turn a little bit, because you and I are both interested in it, to the, the rookie scale options that were decided this week, The dead, or most of them were decided this week. The deadline is still Halloween, which I really support, because what they basically what happened was the league moved the schedule, the, the start date, up a week, or was, no, it was two weeks. They moved it up two weeks, they just moved it back a week. And they didn't move up the option deadline, so these teams, in certain circumstances, got a, a usable sample. Other times, the guy just didn't play, so it didn't matter as much. And... 
I don't know how much of a factor that was in many of these decisions, but I am still happy that that's that that timeline and that space exists now. I think that was the rare pro owner anti player take from you. Yeah, I guess. Well, I just think it's it's good to have more information and as much good as, for the teams. Yeah, but I, I think that if a player is good enough, they can. I, like Damian Jones, I think probably benefited from that time. He might have gotten maybe. His, he might have gotten his option declined if that two weeks didn't exist. I, I like giving them an opportunity either way. I think he would have gotten his exercised either way, but, I mean, we, we can't know. And I, just, I definitely think more players get their option, like play their way out of an option than into it because most, most of the guys who are the borderline cases, they're not really playing much anyway. Really the only thing the extra two weeks opens them up to is, is getting hurt. Or something, you know, really bad happening. Or scrutiny. Like, right. Well, it's kind of like the idea of the guys that the guys that take an extra year in that going into the NFL draft or in basketball, you look at them through a different lens. And so that those two weeks is just basically looking at it going, well, what are you going to be? And then the other big factor as is that I think teams are... Con- are conceiving of roster spots, cap space, and those sorts of flexibility issues differently now. And I would argue that's because they're generally, not exclusively, but generally being better run. And so, yeah, there might be certain teams where, like, I made this argument for, in favor of picking up Furkan Korkmaz's third-year option, because it's like, it was only $2 million. Same thing with Tyler Lydon, which is about $2 million. And I said, yeah, there's a possibility that you're going to that that's two million dollars is going to matter. But is it is it that big a deal to move it at some point? But at the same at the same juncture, something that is worth appreciating is if you don't think somebody's going to contribute on your 15 man roster, and both those teams have lofty aspirations, not only this year but next year, then you kind of owe it to yourselves to even if you're taking a swing on somebody else risky to go for somebody that has a greater chance of success. Yeah. So where were you on on those two? I, I'm pretty sure we both would have exercised Korkmaz's. Yeah, I would have picked up the option for both of those guys on the logic that $2 million is still not that hard to move. I mean, it it was interesting, one that's, and, and you were on this more than I was, with Jody Meeks. I thought Washington actually gave up more in that deal to offload a little bit of salary than I expected. And so I don't know if that's just the way that this is going. Also, I'm not sure Washington realized that basically giving up a second was might might have been as as big of an asset as it might turn into. But yes, yeah, I, I, I could. But I, I still, I have, my thought has always been, especially in a year, and this is worth repeating that a lot of teams are going to have cap space that somebody would have seen Korkmaz in particular, I think Korkmaz more than Leiden, and just said, yeah, we'll take him on. You know, like maybe you have to give up something non-zero, but not significant. But that the idea that basically that the value, the potential value of him being like a low end rotation player next year is more than the cost of potentially being wrong and having $2 million sitting on your books. I agree with that. And I think maybe the bigger failure with Korkmaz, who I I think is maybe the most interesting option decision. And obviously that's why we're, we're talking more about him. If you're not going to pick that up, I think the right move is probably, I don't know for sure what the trade market is, but I bet you could have gotten some type of second rounder for trading him over the summer to a team 
team that maybe wasn't certain it would pick up his option, but at least thought it might and thought he could have a multiple years with that team. And maybe that's a consequence of not having a general manager throughout the offseason. I've wondered a lot, and I think it might just be because general managers aren't sure until this point, why guys with options that are expected to be declined or could be declined aren't traded right before training camp. I've always seen that as an avenue. But what might end up happening is these general managers are a little bit, if you could argue risk averse, I I don't exactly know the right term for it. I think that's the right one. That they want to see them in that circumstance before cutting bait. But then there's also risk. Like, let's say the Sixers got offered something of tangible value for Korkmaz in summer, like during the summer, then maybe they wouldn't have taken it on the logic of, oh, maybe he's going to look better. I mean, he did have that 40-point game in summer league. So you have all these factors. And so I'm sure there's a market inefficiency here somewhere, but without knowing the conversations that are happening between front offices, I don't know where it is. It might be that the the market inefficiency is making better offers for these types of players and just saying, hey, you know, yeah, maybe we'll eat an extra million or two, but we have this opportunity. Like, for example, the Orlando Magic have a trade exception from the Alfred Payton deal. I think it's about $3 million right now. They could use that to claim somebody off waivers. They could also use that to acquire somebody of low value in a trade. They would have been an interesting team to talk about a lot of these different guys that, especially the ones that are a little bit more offensively capable and just say, well, I mean, what else are we going to do with this money? We're not even close to the luxury tax. And maybe they don't end up making the team. But first of all, you could get them without sacrificing a roster spot until the season starts. And I would like to see those kinds of teams in the gray area get more aggressive. Yes, I would too. I mean, the Magic are a great example. That million dollars could matter to the 76ers. That could be very important. It's going to be meaningless to the Magic. It just won't matter against their cap. And so, yes, uh, as far as the inefficiencies... I really think a thing that happens is, so I can't say for certain the 76ers should have traded Korkmaz because I don't know what they could have gotten. Like, I don't know that. I can't say that. And I think general managers are aware of that, that they can't be criticized as directly when we don't know what trades they could have made. But if the 76ers traded Korkmaz and the trade didn't work, then yes, we can absolutely criticize them for that. And so... I I really do think in general, throughout how GMs handle trades, that is a factor because, you know, some of it is job preservation, that if you can avoid that criticism, you can hang on to your job. That's why we just need to ensure that Danny Ainge says the offer, like, says that every team got offered, like, four first-round picks (laughs) and wouldn't trade them player X, because then that way we know. Or (laughs) on one hand, yes. On the other hand, do you have to take Brandon Knight, too? Yeah, well, that's actually a really good thing that we should talk about, about. So there was... That report out there of the Rockets offering four first-round picks for Jimmy Butler, and something that you and I both latched onto was there there are these two big caveats in that sort of deal. So one is what you just said with Brandon Knight of like, okay, you're going to take back negative value in addition to those picks. And so that's one way that you can try to balance a trade, if depending on how, how it's structured. Like you can add assets by adding seconds or whatever, or you could take it away by negative contracts or players, play, you know, all those sorts of things. But then the second one, which we, we've only gotten little allusions to, there was a great uh, Jeff Zilga tweet about how the protections were like not horrible or something like that, like, or like not, not all, not all like crazy, like something like that. And that's the other way you can do it. And so even though those picks would have to convert or, you know, resolve really quickly just to not violate the Stepien rule, 
it is entirely possible that you could structure a trade, especially with the Rockets, who we expect to be a very good team, especially with Jimmy Butler, in a way that a four a, a four first round pick trade for Jimmy Butler would actually be a significant negative, even for a general manager that was more future focused than Tom Thibodeau. Yeah. Plenty more to talk about with Dan Feldman, but first a message from Pluto TV. Pluto TV is the leading free streaming television service. You can watch over a hundred TV channels and thousands of movies on demand, all completely free. And my personal favorite feature of Pluto TV is that they not only never ask you for a credit card, and that's great in and of itself, big point, but you don't even need to sign up. And so all of the other pains that can come from signing up and mailing lists and all that, you don't need to worry about that with Pluto TV. It is the easy and completely legal way to watch your favorite TV shows and hit movies for free. You can download it for free on all of your favorite devices today, including your phone, Smart TV, Roku, PlayStation, Apple TV, Amazon Fire TV, and anywhere else you stream. So what are you waiting for? Never pay for TV again by downloading Pluto TV. Also have a message from TrueCar. Hey there, diehards. Here's some football facts even you might not know about. The first football game was played in 1869. In an average game, the ball typically is only in play for about 11 minutes. And finally, pizza consumption rates go up during the week of a big game. Okay, you probably knew that last one. But here's another fact that you might not know that's actually really useful, especially if you plan on tailgating. TrueCar also helps people get used cars. That's right. TrueCar is not just for buying new cars. With their certified dealer network and nationwide inventory of nearly 1 million used cars, you'll enjoy real pricing on actual inventory and a simpler buying experience, whether you buy new or used. And with TrueCar, users can see what others paid, so they know if they're getting a good deal before buying. They are also more likely to enjoy a faster buying experience by connecting with TrueCar certified dealers. So when you're ready to buy a new or used car, check out TrueCar and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. Let me put you on the spot here, kind of maybe a middle ground on this. If the trade were Jimmy Butler for Brandon Knight, Marquise Chris, and four unprotected first rounders, who should say no? Interesting. So unprotected. So you basically you're going in the, the, the charitable route. If they're all unprotected, to me, the side that should say no is Houston, because that is just a gigantic amount of risk to take on. And that means also, as this is something that Oklahoma City's had to deal with recently, you can't make many other moves on top of that. And I don't, uh, Jimmy Butler would be nasty with them. I think he would, he would definitely help them a lot, but they have so much offensive creation that you're marginalizing Butler and you already have enough guys with the stagger to make it work. So Houston benefits. I don't think that makes them like the title front runner. I don't think that makes them better than the Warriors. It certainly gives them a, a superior chance to what they would have right now. And for Minnesota, if they had a general manager that was valuing things in the way that I, I am, they would see the the risk involved. And the parallel here, for me, it wouldn't be as catastrophic, partially because of the pick swaps and the teams involved. But every single time a team trades an unprotected pick, what should be in the back of their minds is a circumstance like what happened to the Nets or what happened to, like, let's see, if you want to go really far back, the Cavs with James Worthy or all these other ones. Because when you're dealing that far out, you know, this isn't trading Houston's unprotected first when they just 
got Chris Paul. Like, it's not the same thing as that. You never know what can happen to a franchise. And while their incentives are not going to be in line with tanking, they could just have a, you know, they could have an injury-filled year. They could have, their team could break up. And so it would be a hard bet for a win-now general manager to do. But I absolutely would have taken that trade if I were Minnesota. I would also do it as the Timberwolves. And I would have said I would have done it as the Rockets until this slow start. It gives me a little pause because obviously you're making this trade for the present. And if the team isn't quite as good as I thought in the present, if I'm not getting that immediate value, in, I, I'd be a little more hesitant. Uh, it'd be very borderline to me as the Rockets, but I might do it. Championships are important. Like if that, Banners fly forever. Exactly. If you're going to make a big deal that you are chasing a championship, that you're trying to beat the Warriors, that your goal is not just to win 50, 60 games and have an impressive season and lose in the playoffs. If you are really, truly serious about chasing a championship, sometimes you've got to make risky moves like this and pay the consequences down the road. The Cavaliers won a championship. Cleveland got a championship. That hasn't happened in decades. And it's worth it. Everything they're going through now is worth it. Like, they're paying J.R. Smith. It's a miserable situation. Everybody's unhappy. They have an interim coach who doesn't even want to be there. Like, these are all leftover effects of the moves they had to make to win and then stay contending for a championship. And that's okay. They won a championship. Like, that's a great thing. And, you know, we don't need to beat teams over the head for the after effects, especially when it worked, when they won. And sometimes you take a good swing and it it doesn't connect, and that's okay, too. Uh, But that is the type of risky trade that I really think the Rockets should not be afraid to make. That one might be just a little too steep, but I would not dismiss it out of hand as, oh, look how much it could hurt us down the road. I'm totally on board with the concept of that kind of move, especially when the window for Chris Paul and James Harden is probably narrower in terms of time than a lot of people are thinking. Mm-hmm. I mean, we there is a chance that Chris Paul is going to age way, way better than most of his peers, especially his peers being small point guards. I mean, I wrote a piece three years ago, I think it was, arguing for the Clippers to trade Chris Paul on the logic that A, he might leave, and B, you'd ever know when this is going to fall apart and get the value while you can. And also that I didn't think the Clippers were going to be good enough to warrant keeping him. And he is defying a lot of that, but just defying it for one year does not mean you'll defy it for the next. That's the father time is undefeated for a reason. But the other challenge of it with Jimmy Butler is he's a pending free agent. And even if you have a wink, wink, nudge, nudge deal to sign him after that, I don't think he's going to leave a lot of money on the table. And yes, that is to a degree an ownership problem. Like there, there, I think fans for whatever reason, and I do not understand this most of the time are overly sympathetic to owner concerns. Like the most, one of the most ridiculous ones that this year was the Nuggets, Nuggets fans defending them, their ownership ducking the luxury tax this year so that they might not have to pay the repeater tax in four years, which they won't. <laughs> yeah. So you have, you have those sorts of circumstances, but as a practical matter, something as a general manager should be considering is, am I building a team that is eventually going to be sabotaged because of how expensive they are? And I would be concerned by adding Jimmy Butler if my part of my goal is, part of my goal is winning now and all that, and all those arguments are still there, of is this an untenable situation? And the parallel there might be where the Wizards are about to be, even though the Rockets are way better right now than the Wizards will ever be with their core. Yeah, but I think I think that's a very important thing. The, the fact that the Rockets are way better right now. Some of those problems down the road are worth it if you're really good in the short term. Yeah, I mean, actually, so I'm going to ask, I'm, I decided this morning that I'm going to write a piece on this. Uh, and so I will now put you on the spot with a Jimmy Butler related question. So 
the the idea behind my piece, I, I I don't I don't usually get to pick my titles, but the concept that I'm using in my head is called Bird in the Hand. And the idea here is we have seen a, a series of teams choose not to put many assets into or reportedly into acquiring Jimmy Butler on the logic that they might be able to sign him this offseason. And so my question is not necessarily about giving up assets. It is about where teams' expectations should be. So let's say you are the Los Angeles Clippers, and it comes to your attention that if you acquired Jimmy Butler now, he would sign a a, a five-year contract at or near the max. And so basically, you would probably transfer what would be, let's say, in, under this deal, you would transfer what is now a max slot into Jimmy Butler right now. So you get Jimmy Butler for this year, and you also get him for the next five at that cost. So my question to you is, if we take that conceit, ignoring the asset cost, because that's a whole different thing, is there a line or a collection of teams that probably should be considering that as opposed to the mystery box that is having one max slot? Yeah, I mean, the Clippers, I think, should consider that because they're good enough right now. They are a borderline playoff team, and Jimmy Butler can help them this season. The Heat should consider that. They're another borderline playoff team. And the difference with the Heat is the Heat are in such a bad cap situation that I have some major concerns about giving Jimmy Butler a max contract for the next five years. But if you're the Heat, you already have all this money jamming up your books. It's a long road to flexibility. Uh, And so I would be, I'd say it makes sense for teams like that. Uh, It doesn't make sense for teams that aren't any good yet. You know, like the Knicks, if they're trying to get Butler down the road, like he's not going to help them this year. Probably not worth it. Well, but it, but is there a benefit of knowing that you're getting getting him as opposed to like let's there's a possibility with the Knicks that they get somebody ridiculous. You know, I don't think it's going to be Kyrie, but Kyrie, Kevin Durant. You know, you can go through the list. But there's also a possibility that you get no one. Like I can understand. A, there's a group of teams. Maybe the Lakers are lo- have lofty enough aspirations like this, where Jimmy Butler is closer to their bo- to their bottom of the of the band of expectations than the top, and so. Another team that I thought of in this conversation, and it's a team that has been bandied about a little bit in the Jimmy Butler stuff, is Brooklyn. And Brooklyn, depending on how they're feeling about D'Angelo Russell and his cap hold, my instinct is that their cap space is probably less valuable, even though I'm very encouraged by their team, because they're in this circumstance, like I think the Chicago Bulls might be in, where they'll get in the room a lot, but it'll be hard for them to win in the room, because they'll be competing with bigger market teams, teams that have better talent. And while I like Kenny Atkinson, I don't know that he is the next, you know, Steve Kerr, Brad Stevens, where guys just want to play in that system and want to play for him. So let's say the asset price goes down because as it currently stands, I don't think Brooklyn can, unless unless Thibodeau overvalues what Brooklyn has, I don't think it makes much sense. But I, if, if basically what you're saying to them is instead of having cap space in 2019, you get Jimmy Butler, that team goes from being interesting to being a lot more <laughs> viable really quickly. And I'm not sure that they can realistically expect to do better, even if he's not really the right age for their young core, that he's, he's close enough that they all of a sudden they become this much more relevant team. So there are two variables that I would want to assess, and maybe you want to consider these, or maybe these are things you, like the assets you'd have to give up to a degree that you just want to leave out. 
Um, one, and I think they're both really interesting in how they apply to the Nets. One, does Jimmy Butler fit your culture? Because I am a huge believer in how good of a player Jimmy Butler is. I think he's very underrated. I don't think people really appreciate how good he is. He does not get along well with Carl Anthony Towns and Andrew Wiggins, and that causes problems. That lowers his worth. Now, from the outside, without knowing perfectly well, it seems like the Nets have more of a culture of hard work and toughness and playing with intensity and that Jimmy Butler would be good for their young players and fit in well with their program, it seems. But that'd be something I think they would have to check out. Uh, the other thing is where is Jimmy Butler going to end the season if we don't trade for him? Because I would much rather have Jimmy Butler on a four-year max contract with 5% raises than a five-year max contract with 8% raises. So, you know, that tilts the math a little bit. If I can have Jimmy Butler, like, that excites me, and there's definitely value in trading for him and getting him, and there is value in that. However... If I feel like I have a decent shot of getting him on a better contract because he's going to end the season either in Minnesota or in another place he doesn't want to stay, I got to consider that too. And it's also a situation where if Butler is interested in the Nets, he can actually affect that circumstance by giving them feedback, whether it's honest or dishonest, about <laughs> about what his willingness would be to go there. And the second point you brought up there is extremely important for understanding the three-dimensional chess of some of these negotiations, because Jimmy Butler, at his age and with the wear and tear that is on, on him due to being overworked and I had I had somebody email me like oh t- Jimmy Butler has played fewer minutes than some of the other guys yeah but remember that part of the reason he's played fewer minutes is because he's missed time <laughs> due to injuries by being overworked <laughs> so that counts as well and my it's not just about how many minutes you played there's a lot of stress and everything else also he plays actively on both ends of the floor it's like his minutes seem incredibly high stress to me he, and, he practices hard too you play for Thibodeau yeah, you practice every day they're absolutely. not easy practices it's hard to yeah. count those from the outside, but they do add up. And so, to me, Butler is one of the clearer cases this offseason, or sorry, in the upcoming, in 2019. It always gets weird using this and last when we're still in the year that the most recent offseason occurred. But for the Lakers and the Knicks in particular, I would much rather have Jimmy Butler on a four year deal than a five year deal. Now, if I, once you transition into the beggars can't be choosers part of the free agency discussion and that's a kind of exactly what I was getting at with the initial question then you you kind of you you bite it and you take it because you have to but it is interesting and then the other factor in that is how much does Jimmy Butler value it because I would expect that there's a significant chance he doesn't make as much in that last year if he signs a four-year deal as a five-year deal he's still making you know he's going to make plenty of money on his next contract and again just like what a player prioritizes in free agency there is not a wrong or right answer here, but what a player prioritizes is extremely important and often affects the outcome of where they actually end up. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's possible that if he signs a four-year deal next summer, that that's his last contract in the NBA. Like, I think he'll probably get another after that, but it's possible that could be it. Would you rather have Jimmy Butler on a three plus one or a straight five? Ooh, you know, it depends on the team. If I'm the Rockets, it's no question three plus one because of Paul's and Harden's age. My, my window cont- to contend is going to, I think, be closed by then, especially, you know, giving up those picks. Like you said, that lowers other trade flexibility. Like I don't see an easy pivot into something else. You are all in for 
a couple years, maybe those three years. Uh, for most teams, the answer is probably three plus one for me. Uh, the Rockets are a clear-cut example on the on that side, and that's why I say for most teams, because I'm not sure I can think of a team where the clear answer is five. There might be somewhere it's five by a, by an edge, but I can't think of any situations where it'd be clearly five. What Which way would you go? For most teams, I would go three plus one. The only situations that might be different are teams that, like, maybe the Knicks, because they're so far out, and because they have other players that are going to get more expensive if they're any good, then basically they probably, the idea being that they probably won't have cap space in four years anyway, so the opportunity cost is lower. And so the challenge as always with options, either direction, but when it's a player option, it's the team's challenge, is that you assume the other party is going to act rationally. So if he's worth that option, or if he's going to, if he's going to do better than that, that means he's done well, but that also means he might be gone. And if he's not doing well, then he'll pick up the option and then you have that money in your books. So I would generally go three plus one though, but yeah, maybe like the Knicks and a few of these other circumstances where it might be further out and like, so yeah, I'll give an example. So for the Knicks, it's like by that point, if Mitchell Robinson is good, he'll get paid. Nokina will get paid. Porzingis will be on his new contract almost immediately. So you have all that. And while we're talking about Jimmy Butler, somebody else that I don't expect to exert his will in this way, but absolutely could is Kemba Walker. Because Kemba Walker, a little bit younger, he's 28 right now, he'll turn 29 during the playoffs this year. So I could see him, especially as a smaller guard, you know, listed at 6'1", I could see him preferring a fifth year in the abstract. And the only team that can offer him a fifth year is whatever team he's on when the music stops. And, you know, maybe he's down to stay in Charlotte for a long time, but if he wants to be somewhere else, and that gets into an even more complicated calculus in terms of, would you rather have Kemba Walker than the prospect of other guys because of his his cap hold and everything else, and because you could probably get him at less than the max. So... He could have that impact, but I don't expect him to exert that force like Jimmy Butler because Jimmy Butler's basically already done that. Yeah, I, I think Kemba Walker is going to stay in Charlotte and get a max contract next summer. That's my prediction on him. I, I talked to him last year when those trade rumors first started to kick up about it. And basically when I was talking with him, it was almost as if I had, he's like, I've never been through this. Like, I'm not even really sure what to say or do. Like, I always had to explain to him as we went, like, well, some players say they'd welcome a trade if that's what the team wants to do. Some players say, I can't think at all about it. Some players try and state their case of why they should stay. Like, I had to lay out kind of how different players have handled it in the past. And he's like, well, I want to stay. Like, I love being in Charlotte. I want to stay. It's important to me. And, you know, sometimes guys just say that, but enough players just say, hey, you know, it's not up to me. It's a business. I play wherever they, they send me. I just want to play that he could have taken that route. There would have been no criticism. So I tend to believe being in Charlotte actually is something important to him. It's certainly not the only thing. Money matters. Winning matters. It's Being in Charlotte is not the only thing, but I, I tend to believe that it actually is important to him. And one thing, while I think that free agents should be unrestricted earlier, and, and I just think it's it's real, the amount of team control that's in the process right now makes me uncomfortable. And uh, Nate and I actually, it's something we talked about a little bit in a Stitcher Premium podcast recently. One benefit of guys like Kemba and Jimmy Butler hitting free agency for the unrestricted for the first time in their late 20s is that I think they have a pretty good idea of this being their last big contract. And so they're more clear-eyed about what that means. And again, that doesn't necessarily say 
they're going in direction X or direction Y, but at least they have the information at their disposal and the knowledge that this is what this contract means to me and whatever it is that I want most, I better make make it happen now because this is probably the last chance. And if you want a good example of that already playing out, it's Nicholas Batum. Uh, he was going into free agency. A lot of people thought, hey, maybe he'll be on the move. And he knew what he wanted. He wanted that big contract. He got it from the Hornets. And that obviously hasn't worked out great for them. But I, I do think that kind of is a an example that will be followed with, with Kemba. And as a point of clarification, I know you you know this, but the them in this case does not include Nicola Batum because it worked out pretty damn well for him. <laughs> yes. Yes. Thank you for clarifying that. He came out great. Yeah. I mean, he's he's making a lot of money for another two years after this year, assuming he picks up his player option. I'm not going to do the Nate option voice, but it certainly will be <laughs> one in in the future. So we have a little bit of time left. And what I like to do in the early part of the season when I have guests on is ask them about what they're looking for moving forward. It can be over the next couple of weeks, can be over the next month or so, but like you watch the whole league. What are you excited to see and what are you going to be focusing on? Uh, well, we've talked a lot about the Rockets already, but I definitely have more of an eye on them. I'm going to have a lot eye on, like everybody else, I'm going to have an eye on the Lakers all season. It's such a weird mix of players. You have LeBron there, you have the young players, the the oddly fitting veterans. There's so much going on there. Always, always going to have an eye on them. And I got to start looking closer at the Sacramento Kings. Uh, you know, they're they're playing hard. They're playing fast. They're young. They seem to be ahead of schedule. Maybe this just is a is a small sample and a good start, and it falls apart. But it's at least time to look closer at them and see if this is real. Along those lines, something that I a theory I had at the beginning of this season was that the bottom of the league was going to be better this year than it was in prior years. And that's not universally true. I mean, I expect teams like the Suns to be a lot better once they get healthy. I mean, they've been off a cliff basically whenever Devin Booker can't play, but their defense has been awful. It's going to stay awful, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, teams like Dallas and Sacramento, I didn't expect Sacramento to be there, but Memphis, obviously, they're healthier. So that's a big factor for them. And there are a couple different impacts of that. So one is if if it's right, then that could lead to a little bit of stratification in terms of the draft. Maybe it doesn't just because it clarifies early enough that these teams get in the situations. But also, it can affect teams higher up in the totem pole. I mean, Memphis beat Utah in Utah already this year. I mean, Memphis might be a playoff team. It's, it's a possibility. And so, but what, if those teams are feisty, I mean, Boston lost to Orlando in Boston. Like, we're, we are seeing some of those games. That was a weird game. But we're seeing some of those. And so, there might be this, at some point, stratification. And then whether that stays put because there are teams like Chicago has a bunch of guys that are hurt right now and they looked feistier against Denver than they have in some of their other games like when they got shellacked by the Warriors so I want to really see where the lines are and I think it's probably my general rule with that is it takes a month and a half to two months to really like you know who's bad but to know where the where the separations are and it might be that there's one extra line this year than I expected. And that would be pretty fun because of lottery reform. Because if that's what happens, then maybe we see less blatant tanking at the bottom because they all they might be about the right number of teams. Except for Cleveland. We know, like, if there's any team that, that, cur- that currently has a bad record and doesn't, like, have great hope in sight, it's Cleveland. Well, and a team that has clear-cut incentives because Cleveland's pick is top 10 protected. And now, because of the lottery going all the way through four and balancing out a little bit, if you want to ensure a top 10 pick, 
I would say you probably want to be somewhere. I, I'm not looking at the odds right now. That would make me feel a lot smarter, but somewhere around six or seven. And that's very different from being feeling like if you're nine or 10, you're probably okay. They have this weird standoff going with Larry Drew, where Larry Drew says, I don't want to be just the interim coach. I don't want to do this job I have, but I also will not quit this job I have. And this is like the Cavs seem to want him in this job. And so I don't know what gives. I don't know what changes, but let's just say this goes on the rest of the year the that Larry Drew begrudgingly does it and the Cavs don't hire an outside coach until the offseason he just does it and he's not thrilled with it not thrilled with the organization and knows he's done after the year like what is I feel like a lot of coaches in that situation would just kind of check out not to do that good of a job just play the young players lose a bunch whatever it doesn't matter but maybe if he wants to spite the Cavs maybe this is a rare situation where he goes the other way and tries to win oh like a reverse tank like a spite, yeah. a spite reverse tank? Yeah, that yeah, would like, be fun. Like, you didn't give me the contract I wanted, so now I have to play to prove I'm a good coach. Or I have to coach to prove I'm a good coach to get my next job, to show I know what I'm doing. So, yeah, I can't look long-term. I can't think about your draft pick. Now, I kind of think that no matter how hard the coach is trying to win, the Cavs aren't coming anywhere near conveying that draft pick this year. But that could be how he views it. I don't know. Yeah, that's definitely interesting. I mean, if Kevin Love has an extended absence, that will make it a lot harder just because the the positive theory of the Cavs this year relied a lot on Kevin Love being activated by the change in role. And I hadn't seen much of that. Also, he's been limited, presumably, by this injury that is now keeping him out. And yeah, that it's, it's going to be hard for them. And also, you know, the Im- how willing is Larry Drew as the voice to take input from the front office because if he says, no, I'm not going to play Colin Sexton 25 (laughs) minutes a game because I need to win games, maybe they end up firing him for that as opposed to that that's the way this resolves, which then gets in some ways even weirder. Do you know the most coaches a team has had in the season? No, I do not. It's four. Unsurprisingly, one of the, there's two teams have done it. Uh, One is the, the uh, Ted Stepien Cavaliers. That because makes of total sense. They did. Yeah. And one of those coaches was Chuck Daly. Uh, he was somewhere in the middle. And the other is, I want to say, uh, is the 1989 Indiana Pacers. It's a little bit of trivia for you. I like it. That's a lot of coaches. Oh, man. This is a high-profile group of coaches for the Pacers. Jack Ramsey, Mel Daniels, George Irvin, and Dick Versace. Wow. Maybe that was one of those circumstances. Is it possible that, like, Mel Daniels came out of, like, the front office or something? That they, they Maybe. Went, that they went into one of those circumstances of, like, using an interim, using a, a very short-term interim coach? Because that is sometimes, I remember the Warriors had, like, they had some really weird one- or two-game interim coaches. I did this when I was when I was writing the book. And it was basically just because they wanted somebody that was already around, but that deliberately wasn't going to be the long-term answer. Maybe that's how Daniels got the job. Because otherwise, it would be really surprising that he lost it. Well, he did go 0-2. Oh, no. So, yeah. Well, once you've done that, you know, sometimes you just need to make a change. Yeah, you gotta. You can't lose the team any further. So, <laughs> Something else that I want to get a sense of, it's kind of the opposite of what I was talking about with the, with the bottom of the league, is some of these teams, like the Clippers are a good example of this, or the Nets and the Pistons and all this, of like, it's not necessarily about how many games they win or lose, but of those teams, which ones look 
playoff caliber. And generally speaking to me, if I think a team looks like a playoff team in the first two months, if they don't get hurt, they'll probably end up making it towards there because somebody else will get injured on another team or something else. And, you know, there's always fluke. There are teams that don't look like playoff teams that make it in and vice versa. But I want to, I just need to get a better sense of them. You know, I've watched a couple of games of everybody, but a couple of games is not enough time because you just don't have the variance. And a big factor in all that is how often do, how consistently do they beat the bad teams? Then how consistently do they beat the teams in their own tier? It always gets, people get fixated on how often they beat the best of the best. But generally speaking, that is not nearly as good a predictor as like what San Antonio does of just beating the ever-loving crap out of every team (laughs) that's at the bottom of the league. And so if teams like the Clippers or, you know, the Pistons when they had that big win streak, if if teams can beat whoever's and beat those teams that are in front of them and then put up a fighting chance in the other games, that's a much greater chance of success. So... Yes, that's a good thing definitely to watch for. I I will say this, that the answer to your question of which teams look like a playoff team of those middling teams, the answer, for the most part, are going to be teams in the West. There are probably more teams in the West that are going to look like playoff teams if you don't account for that. Like, if you're just seeing the quality of play, it's going to be more teams in the West. Uh, One exception, you know who's kind of looked like a playoff team to me just watching them play, and I like how they look? It's the Hornets. I've seen some I've seen some good times for them and I'm trying to remember who it was. I saw one just truly awful game from them and it sort it it started turning me but they have probably those... against the Raptors. Oh yeah, they when they got stopped by the Raptors. And then the other funny thing that they just have this snake in their boots in close games. I don't think there's anything structurally to that. I, I don't expect it to continue, but there's a point where it starts to make it queasy, especially after they already blew one game like that this year. Yeah, I mean, that can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. It could have just started as dumb luck, but if they start to believe that they're doomed in close games, that can make a difference. I mean, they have a new coach now. I I tend to think, hey, clo- a close loss on the road against Miami is not that bad. A close loss in their opener against the Bucks is not that bad. That's pro- To me, that seems like a positive, but you're right. Uh, they've had so many years of these close losses that maybe we need to read more into it with them specifically. Is there anything else that you would like to discuss? Not anything we need to, but anything you'd like to? I mean, we can just talk more about this Larry Drew situation if you want. I find that fascinating. I, I think it's underplayed and just so wild that, that they named somebody an interim coach and he said, no, no, nah, that's not me. And it's also incredible that it happened it with, and it's also not surprising that it happened with an organization that this confirms a lot of what many of us have been skeptical about the whole time with Dan Gilbert. I mean, Dan Gilbert has cycled through coaches and general managers so regularly, both when they had and did not have LeBron and organizations like there's this funny thing that happens with culture and all that kind of stuff where if you're winning it largely gets pushed pushed to the wayside and so you don't go through it and then it's only when when a team is struggling that it gets put through the microscope but with Gilbert it was so noticeable even when they were successful that it still got talked about partially that's LeBron and everything else but I mean it just seems like it would be there was that team official who said something to Jason Wood his piece about like Working for Dan Gilbert is bad, but but it's it's great once you get fired because you basically you're still getting paid, and <laughs> there is a lot of that in the organization. And while an NBA general manager job, an NBA coach job, is always going to be desirable because there are only thirty of them in the league at any given time, and there is no better league in the world. I can imagine there being people that would be hesitant to to take those jobs just because of where where it might be going, even though Gilbert deserves credit at other points in his tenure for being an owner that's willing to pay for to have a good team. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that last part. I, I think Gilbert gets a bad rap, not because people 
over discuss his flaws. I think people are pretty dead on when they discuss his flaws. But I feel like his, the positives that come with him owning the team are, are not brought up enough. There are, you know, their payroll has been through the roof, high luxury tax payments, and that's in Cleveland. That's in a small market. That is not really seen very often, and he does not get enough credit for that. Uh, the other thing is, I don't want to get into the merits of should they or should they not have fired Teron Liu, but there are plenty of owners who would have said, Okay, he is not the best coach for our team. He is not the right coach for our team right now. But I'm not going to pay him $15 million to go away. We're just going to ride this out. You're going to have to deal with it. And that hurts the team. Gilbert should get some credit for signing off on paying that much. Now, maybe that was a mistake. Maybe they should have kept Lou. That's a different discussion to me. Yeah, and I mean, my bigger issues with Gilbert and the turnover has been more things like what happened with David Griffin than what's happening with Ty Lue. And I, there's also this kind of the the identity of the team issue. And we've talked about a couple times on this episode about the incentives and aligning GMs and coaches. And there's also this weird kind of situation that happens sometimes where if a GM worries that things might get bad, that they still want to sell the coach that, or sorry, sell the ownership that things that there's a chance that things are going to get better just because it's it's better to have that like kind of little bit of positivity even if things end up going badly and so like maybe Kobe Eltman I don't know how he felt honestly in his heart of hearts going into this season but it probably would be better from him for his perspective to kind of say the positive case of this is what the team could be rather than like what a couple of us you know many of us thought was like the the downside risk which they're playing into right now and, and so you're saying from Kobe Altman's perspective that's maybe has something to do with firing Teron Liu to yeah to it's like we're not we're life. not like the idea that they're not playing up to expectations as opposed to no they're bad like because so, if they're bad it's his fault and if they're not playing up to expectations it's Lou's fault so we we've had we've hit on everything in this podcast we already had you take ownership side over players with with rookie scale option deadline and now i've got you accidentally walking into an argument for having president slash coaches no, I, it's just it's just explaining the incentives involved. I don't support it. It's I I, but it, I understand why it happens. I don't support that is it. The, well, I think it happens because of power dynamics and some other things. But that is a real advantage of it. The front office and coaching staff are aligned, you know, because they have to be yeah. on those teams. Like there, there, are, there are a lot of disadvantages I think outweigh it. Right. But I don't well, think people I, talk I, enough about the real advantage. Yeah. The the through line of a of a single vision, and I mean. In various sports, including the NBA, the conflicts between front office and coaches, both due to the perspective issues, but also due to their priorities and player evaluations, that's a big point of friction. I generally think that friction is a good thing for organizations, but it certainly is a gigantic pain to deal with. Yes, absolutely. No, I agree. I think a system with checks and balances works better. Uh, It's too too big of a job for one person to do. It's really two jobs. It's probably even more than that. As an aside... It reminds me, though that is the big advantage with having a president coach, it reminds me here in Detroit seeing the Pistons with Boban Marjanovic, where Stan Van Gundy, team president, signed Boban to the lucrative contract he's on now, and Stan Van Gundy, the coach, acted like the front office gave him some player he didn't know what the hell to do with. So it doesn't always work, but it should always work. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, it's going to be, I think it's going to be a while until we see 
another another nominal coach GM. But the the other gray line here, that's oh the fuzzy line here, is that coaches having a voice in the personnel process but not being the decider. I think we're going to see more of that. But it's always again this gets into the idea of trade offers and and our limitations in our jobs is that generally speaking that sort of stuff isn't always known other than like the pop case in San Antonio because it's just so prevalent in his history in the franchise that we do know about it. Yes, and I think uh, I mean who's. I would say that Brett Brown clearly has a lot of power in Philadelphia. Oh yeah, I mean he might be de facto coach GM. We don't. I mean there are some people who have that theory out there. I've heard it. Yeah, I don't know if I'd go that far, but I can't outright dismiss that. Um, and so yeah, I mean maybe it will go toward that direction. I'm excited to see where front offices go. And yeah, th- this next couple of weeks is going to be really clarifying. And I've enjoyed where, I mean, other than some of the refing and all that kind of crap, I've really enjoyed where it's going so far and happy to talk about it with you. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Dan Feldman for taking the time to come on. You can read his work at NBC, NBC's Pro Basketball Talk to be specific. And you can follow him on Twitter at Dan Feldman NBA, D-A-N-F-E-L-D-M-A-N-N-B-A. I really like that we went in different directions on this. I mean, the Jimmy Butler conversation and since Dan and I've known each other for so long. We're very comfortable challenging each other and our ideas. And it was clarifying to really think about where the line would be for a potential Butler trade to the Rockets, given the incentives of the teams involved. And there was some interesting reporting from Kelly Eco, actually, at The Athletic, kind of along those lines of how these teams are negotiating or not negotiating in different cases, that trade or potential trade. A lot of amazing storylines going on in the league right now, but I also like giving a little bit of time just to see which ones peter out because you don't want to do a breathless podcast about some team and then all of a sudden it's just because they had a bunch of shots go in and then they fall apart and it could be a time capsule, but you run into that risk. So I'll probably stay big picture for another week or two, then start getting into some of the other stories. I mean, I did the podcast with Sirit Sohi more on the, the Raptors and the Lakers, two teams that obviously have lots of staying power as it were. So Lots more to get to in the coming weeks. If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, Danny LaRue, NBA, at gmail.com is the way to do it. You can send it on Twitter, but things get lost in the shuffle on Twitter with all of the other things that are going on. You can also listen to more of my day-to-day insight on Dunked On, the podcast I do with Nate Duncan, and then my writing is mostly at The Athletic right now, and then Nate and I are also doing what was previously branded as the Twitter NBA show, now is NBA Cast, because now we're not only on Periscope, we're also using Twitch, and we're checking out different platforms beyond that as well. So you can check that out. Next game we're doing is Sixers Pacers on Wednesday of next week. We haven't done a lot of Pacers on the show. We've done a fair amount of Sixers and excited about that. So you can check that out. We tweeted out a lot during it. So you know when the game is, you can check it out. But focusing more on Real GM Radio, if you want to support the show, there are lots of good ways to do it. You can subscribe, download every episode. Those are really important for a show that comes out once a week on a different day. You can't really ever get into a habit with it. Also, just spreading the word. I mean, if you know somebody who's like a specific episode or who you think, hey, I don't know about that. If you know about this series, but I think you really like it, can tell them about that. Really do appreciate it as the show's been going on a long time now, but there are still people who don't know about it. So I really do appreciate that. And of course, leaving a rating, leaving a review in the podcast, wherever you're choosing, 
It's great if it's Apple Podcasts. It's even greater if, for whatever reason, you're not using it. If you write a review in both, you're totally allowed to do that. Whatever you so choose, I really do appreciate the support. And then the single best thing you can do for this show and any other one with advertisers to support it is to check out those advertisers. So betonline.ag, that podcast one promo code gives you a 50% sign-up bonus. And if you use that hashtag Sportsnet Challenge on Twitter with your account information, then you might get 100 bucks. Pretty awesome. I've tweeted out a couple times. You can if you're, if you're confused about how the how it works, you can check. I've tweeted out a couple times. Pluto TV, leading free streaming service. Don't have to use a credit card or sign up. So that's pretty awesome. And True Car, great place to buy new and used cars. It looks like I already have a, a tentative schedule for next week. That it'll be an earlier in the week episode. Another reason to subscribe. Excited about it. Hopefully it ends up happening. I that's why I don't reveal guests is because in case something comes up as things often do. But really looking forward to that. So. Thank you so much for taking the time. Take care and make it a great day. Thank you.